So we're joined by Joseph Hutchinson, who will be reading to us from and talking about the poetry collection, Under Sleep's Moon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. And Joseph, it's wonderful to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. So let's dive in. What sure. inspired the collection? Well, the, the collection is really the, a fruit of the pandemic. When we were sent into isolation, a lot of people seemed able to write about that, about the pandemic and that sort of thing. And boy, I just I just couldn't do it. And in fact, I pretty much stopped writing. It was just a paralyzing experience at the beginning. So I thought, well, I have maybe a chapbook of poems, maybe 12, 15 poems or something that I've always wanted to fix because I, I was never really happy with them. So I went back to those and that led to others and that led to others. And pretty soon I had this large collection of poems that I had uh, revised. And um, so that's why I call it, it's under sleep's new moon, but it's rescued poems. And that's why uh, they're called that, because I tried to rescue them now. Uh, whether anybody thinks they've been rescued, that's a different question. <laughs> oh, well, we'd love to hear from it. Could we have a reading, please? Sure. I'll just go through in, in, in order. These are not really in a strong order of composition or something like that, but they they do kind of follow from early adolescence, I would say, onward into the life of becoming a poet, because that's really what was happening in this period. So this one is called, it's the first poem in the book, it's called Headwaters, Snow Melt Trickles, Spills from the Tundra Moss to Bracken, Growing Gabby, Lusty, then lapsing into reedy ground, only to pour itself down channels farther on. Towards sleep, years later, I sometimes hear that rush, confiding blather at the inner ear. Only my dreams make clear what it says, and the more I ache to waken its gist, the more the water's sly essay slurs toward ocean noise. So I sleep to follow the stream's cold story as it feels its way blindly over one certain rock, its long fingers reading into light the face that dreams so deep and secret there. I think that's where we all start as, as poets, you know, the sense of just blindly reaching for some sense of maybe identity, or I'm not sure what to say about that, but that it you're you're making yourself in a way you're inventing a persona or a way of looking at the world and trying to discover what that is that feels unique to you. It may not be, but it feels unique. Um, let me see. How about you like dogs? I do. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I'll read a dog poem. Okay. I love dogs. It's called Ancient Light. In a dog's eyes, the ancient light appears and beneath it, the prairie lopes and rolls and yips of joy, startled jackrabbit and chipmunk, meadowlark and blackbird into scrambling flight. In a dog's eyes, the ancient light is a tall body. The winds swirl through like water in a water clock, making the blue stem grass bend under the weight of passing time. In a dog's eyes, the ancient light 
gleams in the prairie's veins, those winding streams that summon to their clarities the small birds that sip and sing, singing wakefulness into the world. I don't know what to say about that either. I see I have no commentary. That's the thing. Poems are very hard to comment on. I teach poetry and often students will say, what does this poem mean? And I says, the, I always tell them the meaning of your, the poem is the experience you have when you read it. That's why you can, the best poems, you can reread all of your life and continue to get new things from them. So am I okay on time? Do you want one more? Could we have one more, please? Oh, well, of course. <laughs> Thank um, you. I'll give you, this is the oldest poem in the, in the book, or maybe the second oldest. Uh, don't hold me to that. Uh, it's called A Strong Branch. No friends tonight. No lover. Tree crickets that chur, chur, churred all week are silent now. I wander this empty Denver street, and there is only the rush of my breathing, as if a black-capped night heron were falling through me toward a strong branch knowing it is there, knowing it is down there in the dark. And that concludes the first part of our experience. Thank you so much. You know, I love this idea of these rescued poems. So I'm really curious about what's something that you found when you returned to the poems, what might have changed or stayed the same and maybe surprised you? You know, I think, I guess what surprised me was very often when I would go back, and I'm going back, these are through three-ring binders, right? Notebooks from the old days. And looking at poems that stuck in my head as, as something I should revisit. And I would get there, and nine times out of ten, the real problem was that the poem was avoiding the nub of the issue that was behind the poem. Mm -hmm. It was sometimes, uh, in a, and I don't know if other types of writing produces this, but with poetry, sometimes when the poems fail, it's because you're using them to hide the thing that you're talking about instead of releasing it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I found that that was the biggest challenge was to go back. Why did I, first of all, remember that and want to go back to it? But what is it in there that requires release? And so in some cases, it was a matter of a few words here and there or finding a, a rhythm that works better. But in a lot of cases, it was a matter of this is covering something up. What is it? What is happening at the center of this? And so some of the poems were rescued in the sense like brought back from the dead <laughs> and others were just pulled out of the pool before they, you know, choked. That's about it. So, <laughs> Oh, wow. I love that you still have those, those notebooks. So I, I can never read my own writing. So I love that you still have them and they're still really useful. Yeah, they, they are useful. Even the ones, the ones that really can't, I couldn't say were still useful partly because you see, kind of phases you're going through when you're, oh, here are three or four poems in a row about a similar experience or a similar theme or feeling, cluster of feelings. And then other times you see 
that expands into a thematic thing so that when you, like in this case, when I ended up with all of the many more poems than I expected, I pulled them together on the basis of kind of interweaving themes. And that's what led to, you know, some of them being cut, not necessarily because they were worse as poems, but because they repeated the theme too specifically and, Hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. So with that in mind, could we have another reading, please? Oh, sure. I'll read for I'll read from a little further on in the in the book. This is a, a childhood memory. I was very lucky with my childhood. People who had, um, you know, tr- really traumatic, damaging childhoods. You know, it. I think it's more common than we think. And but I was I was very lucky in not having that. And my challenge was always getting, wanting to spend time by myself. <laughs> That's really what this is about, called Rough Fruit. It was a straggly raspberry hedge, and it ran the length of the backyard fence. One of those four-foot wire fences common in those years when America felt safe because it had rescued the world. The intimacy of that thicket, the solitude the ragged midsummer leafiness of its voice, the tunnels I'd crawl into getting out of the heat, all hung with lamps like Christmas lights, some the flushed color of pomegranates, others richer like drops of red wine. Whole afternoons I'd lie in those hallways with their low ceilings and walls woven of scratchy branches, Flat on my back with a cheek full of seedy berries, I'd doze and sway toward a shadowy depth, like a bucket swung in over the stone lip of a well. Breezes hissed through chinks in the leafage, scattering a confetti of sunlight over my carefree face and my white size 10 t-shirt streaked with juicy intensities. I'd pretend not to hear my mother calling me in for lunch and instead snuggled farther in and pinched more prickly sweet tartnesses off their twigs and mashed them against the roof of my mouth. Gone now, that careless seclusion, lost in this America of stranger friends and tweet storms, drone cameras, hungry cookies, or possible only when eating raspberries, crushing them, tonguing the tiny seeds from between my teeth, feeling the rough fruit light up the dark, watery cloister of my mouth. I love raspberries in case you didn't get that from poem. That's a prose poem, I should say, although I hope the language lifts it up a little bit at least. Uh, I think prose lifts most things up <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh, i still you know i debate in my own head and uh, with other writers of prose poems what is the difference between a prose poem and flash fiction mm-hmm. and um i would point to that poem and say well there's no story mm-hmm. and so that kind of marks it as a prose poem on the other hand there are many fantastic prose poems that have a story. So it, I don't know, it's, it confuses me. You're a fiction writer, so maybe you can clear that up for me later on. Yeah, I'll, I'll think about it. And then later on, I'll see if I have an answer. <laughs> okay. 
Do you want another one? Little one? This yes, is a, please. This is a, goes to, uh, I guess, a philosophical. I have a philosophical streak for what that's worth. And uh, my philosophy is just overly simple. But it, this is called The Brain. And it's one of those where the title is actually part of the first line. The brain can be a fist thrust up by the spine. It cannot, like a gland, unfold like a rose, turn black a stone in the gut of a glacier. Because the brain is silent like heaven, we forget that, whatever we call it, it's also a crumpled map of the infinite. Day after day, we throw it away. Oh, wow. What do you call that kind of poem? I don't, I don't know. Um, I have a few like that. It's one of the things you discover when you go back to old poems is that there are certain things that bubble up in a similar way. And these kind of little philosophical poems seem to do that. I don't know why. I love that they invite you as the poet to revisit and re, you know, reconsider and reflect. And then also as the reader, they allow us to, you know, to reflect and reconsider. And like you said, like where you are, you know, where you're thinking right now, you're thinking in one way, and then you might revisit the poem as the reader, you know, six months down the line where something has happened. And then you read that same poem, but something else reveals itself. And sometimes it's what you needed at that time. Yeah, it's quite magical in a way. You're absolutely right. It's one of the things about uh, about writing poetry that um, that that process of kind of detaching and becoming a reader is really essential. It's I don't see how a person could revise a poem unless you do that. You have to detach somewhat and become a reader and kind of try to experience it from the reader's point of view. Otherwise, it just remains a very, just a personal utterance. Mm -hmm. And and it's kind of opaque. People can't enter into it. So so as a writer, you become a reader in order to get clarity, I guess. So So I can only ask one more question. So my question is going to be, can you please tell us a bit about a piece that you enjoyed, but this piece did not make it in the collection? and why it didn't fit in the collection. Ah, (laughs) we did talk about this. Uh, You gave me a heads up on this. I'm glad. There was a poem, and there were a couple of reasons that I left this out. One was my doubts about whether it's actually flash fiction or not. I don't think it is, but I was concerned about that. And because I was concerned about it, I was trying to make it more and more condensed, but the more I did that, the and the more I lost kind of the movement of the poem as a with a, a plot. It doesn't really have a plot, but the sequence in time, the less poetic it seemed. <laughs> so I ended up leaving it out. Plus, I had already written about raspberries, and these are about pumpkins. So I thought. Can a, can a book sustain two fruits? I don't know. <laughs> or is a pumpkin a vegetable? I, I never learned that either. But anyway, it's called A Field of Pumpkins Along the Willamette River. Uh, the Willamette River is in Oregon. And I lived for a while there uh, working in the Poets in the Schools program out there and, and travel along the river from where I was living to my job every day. 
And you said you might read that to us as well. Yeah, I'll give it a shot here. A field of pumpkins along the Willamette River. I've passed it often driving to work without taking much notice. But now the field of pumpkins is just too vivid, too luminous. I pull off onto the gravel shoulder, brake to a stop and kill the motor. Early October. For miles, the fog has been thick and low over the bottomland along the river. But here it hovers 10 feet or so above the ground, a thick cloud ceiling with a clear vista underneath. I climb out of the car and step up onto the berm that marks the near edge of the field. A quarter mile off, a wall of trees. Beyond it, the bleak rush of river, laurel green in summer, but now a frigid slate gray. Between the berm and the trees, the field is thronged with pumpkins, plump and bright like glowing lamps. Although the sun is folded away in mist, its warmth is slowly altering the fog, making it shift and thin. The whole landscape's unstable, alive, a wildness in it. I feel unstable myself, feel myself lift from the muddy berm float out over the field as if in the basket of a hot air balloon, gliding close to the ground now. Each pumpkin swells and flows by like an image in a fisheye lens, each one wrapped in its own strange radiance. Here and there, small mounds of black earth have shouldered up, glazed with watery light. Ocean waves just before dawn, tumbling but somehow unmoving or maybe simply rolling in a different dimension of time. Rising again, now I see the pumpkins are floating on the earthy waves, like those bathyspheres that carried the early deep sea divers on groaning cables into the abyss. So in each one of these pumpkins must be seeds, like the pale faces of explorers, flame-shaped but cold as shark's teeth, fresh from Atlantis or Who knows? Alpha Centauri. I feel them stirring there, nodding half awake in their clammy netting, wondering into what sort of world they've drifted. Oh, wow. I love that. I don't know if it's because I'm born in autumn, and so autumn is always my season, but I quite like pumpkins. (laughs) Yeah, that was another thing, doing the book. God, I have so many autumn poems. And I struggled to find summer poems and had a plethora of autumn poems. So, Oh, my God. Well, that's enough for another collection, isn't it? Uh, oh, well, maybe. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I do have a few. That's going to be in something. I know it's going to be. I don't know. Oh, good. I'm glad it won't stay, you know, like yeah. lost. Yes. Wonderful. So I feel like that poem was in response to my last question. And so if you'd like to do another reading, we'd love to have it. Oh, sure. Well, let me do, okay, that earlier poem, the raspberry poem that talked about the sense of swinging kind of out over a well. Well, here's another poem about wells, and I haven't figured why these wells keep appearing, but uh, they do. So this is called The Water's Secret. I'm learning to live with the secret of silent water, water that lies on its back in the well, mulling the darkness its surface blind to the clouds flowing over, the cherry blossoms swaying like galaxies over the well's stone mouth, and the face of the girl who peers down, looking for her lost golden ball. 
I accept the moss that thickens like mucus in a sore throat. And I accept the chill of the granite walls and the hanging buckets rotted bottom and the fraying rope that groans faintly as its grip on the warped crank axle weakens. If only fresh water would flood up into the well. If someone would craft a new bucket, weave a new rope. If the girl would undo her braids and shake out her golden hair. But the story is strong. How darkness loves its silent water. The water that holds it so completely in its arms. Water that knows the clouds are too thin. The cherries won't come and the golden ball is gone into the heart of the earth forever. So the water lies back thinking, thinking, telling itself, this darkness isn't so bitter. Other waters are far more bitter, it tells itself. Look at the sea. My darkness isn't nearly as bitter as the bitterness of the sea. No, my darkness is almost sweet. This is the secret I've learned I must learn to live with. The endless entanglement of the bitter and the sweet. That's a well poem. Another one. Do you have time for another? We what do. do you feel? Let me give this one. You know, I'll do two if I have time. Yes. This yes, one, I like to make up words sometimes in poems. And I have a friend, uh, his name is Joe Nig, and he uh, uh, derives from the Bay of Nig up in Scotland, I think. But we are blabbers. We in the old days, when we were not at this advanced age, we would uh, get a jug of wine and walk down the alley and drink until the wine was gone. So this was this is for Joe. It's called Lexicomania and all that jazz. Oh, I should say he's a writer as well. He writes uh, books about fantastic animals, the history of mythical beasts and that sort of thing. Great wow. stuff. We labor with language, our pointed wits flashing like sewing needles in a sweatshop. But it's no sweat. We like it. It keeps us keen and intensely busy. Of course, it's not the cloth which fits or doesn't, lasts or frays, flows out in patterns already dated or slavishly in fashion. No, not the cloth, but the cadence. A cadence that rocks us around the clock like waves slapping a hull. The tide we think in time with, though we know its hubbub isn't the lilt of truth being woven, but the unraveling palaver of our hearts. Too few friendship poems out there, I think. And if you don't mind, I think I'll end with this is the poem that probably went through the most changes. It's a poem that is dedicated to James Wright, who was, had a huge influence on me when I was starting out. And the title arises in the poem, so that's why I'm reading it. It's called Drifting to Sleep in the Orchard. New leaves calm overhead, but higher up, a rumbling wind. The Pleiades sparkle forth. Then a dim gray curtain of clouds is drawn, closed between us. Yet April bends my spine like a green branch, shadow-laden, starred with blossoms. Their fragrance is a thread I long to climb like braiding smoke through a smoke hole. 
For if a labyrinth hides inside me, so must an exit. Suddenly I realize my body is some kind of boat, a sailboat with a wind-tightened sail, moving at ease under sleep's new moon. Oh, how lovely. Oh, I'm glad you liked that. Yes, thank you so much for reading to us, for joining us. And where can we get Under Sleep's New Moon? You know, probably the best place would be my website, which is jhwriter.com. And it's there, you can click on it, and it will take you to a place where you can order through Amazon or preferably IndieBound, uh, where you can find your local independent store to buy it through. And uh, yeah, that would be terrific. And if you want to order it directly from me, I'd be happy to sign a copy and send it on the way. Oh, that's wonderful. What a treat. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today, for reading and your generosity and your time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's been great.